Welcome to Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast that looks at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror we read, watch, and play. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Pershawn. I teach English literature and film studies at McEwen University, and this podcast is where I share my research and ramblings about books, films, and games set in impossible and improbable worlds. This episode is part of a series called Office Hours, devoted to those sort of meandering, reflective, and fun conversations I have with students who drop by to say hello. Now, yesterday was Canada Day uh, here where I live, and very soon it will be Independence Day in the United States. And so I imagined a student asking me what they ought to do about the past week's news, not just this last week, but like past several weeks about residential schools, uh, or whether they ought to celebrate, you know, Canada Day. Now, that's already, that ship has sailed. So whether you celebrated it, observed it, or just canceled it, that's not something I'm I'm looking to change your mind about. But it's something that I was thinking about yesterday. And, I, you know, I thought about the difference just between the words celebrate and observe, and that there's a gulf between those even. Like, to celebrate on a day when many are mourning is to ignore the gravity of the news about these deaths. And just in case you've been uh, away from the news, you've been under a rock, um, many unmarked graves have been found at a number of residential schools, which are were compulsory indigenous boarding schools that existed both in Canada and the United States. And the numbers that we're finding are now over a thousand now, I'm a literature scholar, a uh, film scholar, not an anthropologist, I'm not a sociologist or a historian. Uh, I think many Canadians and Americans are deeply uncertain about how to respond to the literal unearthing of our nation's uh, dark past. And just as I did last year when Black Lives Matter shook the world, uh, I turned to black voices for direction for how to act, how to help. And I did the same yesterday for myself with indigenous voices. Uh, the first voice I listened to was John Jador, who's a Micmac medical resident at Memorial University in St. John's, Newfoundland, who had these wise words to share in an interview posted on CBC's news site. He said that it's tough to celebrate anything right now, in my opinion. These stories have been present since lived experiences have been in Canada, but they're absolutely gut-wrenching when they're confirmed. Jador looked at Canada Day yesterday as an opportunity to learn and listen. And he said that he personally planned to spend it reading and sharing stories. And that was, that was encouraging to me because I thought that's, that's, where, that's my world, right? Reading and sharing stories. As a professor of literary and film studies, I believe in the power of story, of its importance. Uh, I was just reading the entirety of I've read the first half years ago, but I read the whole thing just recently. Jonathan Gottschall's book, The Storytelling Animal, How Stories Make Us Human. It's a book devoted entirely to the premise that story is at the heart of what makes us who we are as a species. Uh, it's not just a sort of like, stories are awesome in the same way that, say, Neil Gaiman writes about at the beginning of one of his short story collections. It's not just an author saying, I think stories are great because it's what I work with. It's my bread and butter. Gottschall's looking at this from the perspective of evolutionary psychology. He devotes a sizable chunk of the chapter titled Ink People Change the World to how stories affect the real world, how the map affects the territory, how the representation affects reality. And he cites instances that were positive, like Uncle Tom's Cabin, which had this devastating effect on slavery in America even though it wasn't really a true story. I always love that because people are like, you know, if it's not a true story, then why do we bother? And it's like, because fiction is an insidious earworm. 
as I said in a recent episode, you know, if it's if it's nonfiction and we know the topic, we can get our shields up. But if it's fiction and it's story, then it sneaks in under our radar. But Gotchel also talks about negative uh, effects of story, like uh, he talks about how Hitler was deeply affected by Richard Wagner's uh, Rienzi, and that it probably played a significant role in the decisions Hitler made that led to World War II and the Holocaust. But Gottschall also looks at conspiracy theories uh, in one section, which he describes as follows. Conspiracy theories, feverishly creative, lovingly plotted, are in fact fictional stories that some people believe. Conspiracy theorists connect real data points and imagined data points into a coherent, this is the important part, a coherent, emotionally satisfying version of reality. He goes on to say that conspiracy theories fascinate us because they are ripping good yarns, showcasing classic problem structure and sharply defined, sharply defined good guys and villains. Now, before I go any further, I want to make absolutely clear that I do not think that anyone who is advocating for the cancellation of Canada Day or anyone who is advocating strongly for the Catholic Church to respond to the recent revelations concerning these grave sites at residential schools anyone who is angry, hurt, sad, devastated by this information, by this news. I am not saying that any of you are conspiracy theorists, but my brain was turning this stuff over because, you know, on social media, there was a ton of just, I guess, meme information, which has always felt a little bit akin to bumper sticker Christianity from when I was younger. You know, if you can get a pithy saying into, uh, you know, a, a bumper sticker or into an Instagram post, my sense is that it probably doesn't mirror reality very well. That like conspiracy theory and me not saying that, that, that these are conspiracy theories, but that there is this kinship here where what we're crafting with our social media responses to the atrocities of the past few years has crafted a coherent, emotionally satisfying version of reality. Again, me taking Gottschall's words there, a coherent, emotionally satisfying version of reality, which has sharply defined good guys and villains, but that doesn't necessarily address the complexity of human existence and the way that we live and breathe. So what do I mean by this? I mean, like, it's really easy to point the finger at capital C Canada. In fact, you could go all caps Canada and say this is all Canada's fault because Canada isn't even a thing. It becomes a very easy villain to point to, or we could go with the Catholic Church and then you, you know, then you can feel morally justified potentially in burning a Catholic Church down. But crafting either of those entities as uniform villains ignores the complexity of history. And this isn't me going rah-rah the Catholic Church or rah-rah Canada. It's just saying I'm looking at what I'm seeing on social media and I'm seeing an oversimplification. And I know what my students say about these things at this point. They will always say to me, but Dr. Prashant, don't you think it's important that we raise awareness? Yes, I absolutely think it's important that we raise awareness. But as I was reading and meditating and thinking about, about Canada and its fraught history with Indigenous peoples, I couldn't help but think of how really simple and really, again, coherent, emotionally satisfying these versions of reality that we're creating on social media are. But the world is complex and solutions to real world problems will be necessarily complex. So how do we retain complexity if we're going to story? If story is neat and tidy, it's always a... Um, simplification of the complexity of reality. It never perfectly mirrors reality. 
how do we retain complexity? How do we fight against a uniform simplicity that unites us against a common foe which potentially doesn't even exist, or if it does, isn't necessarily a uniform foe? My response to this is short fiction. And I know that that's probably people just shutting the podcast off right now. They're like, fuck it, man. You, you've got to be kidding me. Um, short fiction is the answer. No, no. Short fiction isn't the answer to what's going on. There isn't one answer to any of these massive societal problems. There's a, there was a shirt that I saw once on, on a university campus. It said, I heart multiple epistemologies. Epistemologies are ways of knowing things. And I do. I love multiple ways of knowing things. It's why I love the university. It's why I love a liberal arts education. Because we come at problems from a variety of, ex of, of perspectives and disciplines and approaches. And not for one moment would I say that all you need is short fiction. You know, I would never say that. But in responding to what John Jador had said, I decided to read um, some short stories by Richard Van Camp. Richard Van Camp is an internationally renowned storyteller and best-selling author. He was born in Fort Smith, Northwest Territories, and is a member of the Ticho Dene Nation. So Richard's a, he's a celebrated writer, absolutely. And uh, I, I was given the opportunity, the honor of working with him a few years back at McEwen when he was our writer in residence. He's a ridiculously funny guy, uh, an, an incredible storyteller. And a few years back, I taught some of his short stories from a collection called Moccasin Square Gardens in a course on short fiction. I think a lot of people have difficulty with short fiction because we get taught the sort of Aristotelian narrative structure in high school, right? The setting the scene slash exposition, and then there's a problem, and then there's rising action, and then there's a climax, and then there's falling action, and then there's resolution and a denouement. And then we read a short story by someone, say, like John Updike, and that doesn't happen. I remember reading John Updike's AMP when I was in my first year of college, and thinking, what the hell is this thing? It, no, nothing happens. Uh, if you've never read A&P by John Updike, let me give you a quick summary. Three young ladies in bikinis walk into a supermarket. They buy some stuff. While they're there, they're ogled by one of the checkout clerks, who is, by the way, the focalizer, or we might even say the protagonist. When the manager of the store says to the young ladies that the next time that they come in, they should dress more appropriately for being in a supermarket, you know, the old no shoes, no shirt, no service sort of speech, uh, the young checkout clerk stands up for the young ladies and he feels like he's being a sort of white knight. The young ladies have left, he quits his job, he goes into the parking lot and then the story concludes with the statement, I felt how hard the world was going to be to me from then on. From a perspective of plot, it's a flat loss. But short stories don't follow the Aristotelian structure, at least some short stories don't. It's probably best to think about short stories as though they are a chunk of the Aristotelian narrative structure. They're a slice of life, but really they're not a slice of life because they're a slice of fiction. But they're just a piece of it. So maybe all we're getting is the exposition. Maybe all we're getting is the problem. Maybe all we get is a piece of rising action. Or maybe we come in right before the climax, or potentially right after. But a lot of students, and I was certainly one of them, was frustrated by the fact that there's no real sense of resolution. There is no denouement in John Updike's A&P. 
But I think we're so trained to think of every narrative as needing to fit that Aristotelian model that we judge films by it, we judge TV shows by it, we judge ultimately short stories by it. And when we do, we're not really assessing the thing that we're reading. Now, there are short stories that do have the beginning, middle, and end. And those are the types of short stories that we got in the Great Pulp era. So there's a lot of science fiction that follows that beginning, middle, and end, even when it's short fiction. Uh, the writings of Robert E. Howard with Conan, uh, that's a good example of that sort of thing. Thomas M. Leach, in an article called The Debunking Rhythm of the American Short Story, has this to say about this. Short story theory has continued to distinguish between two kinds of stories, or two structures for stories, which we might call the anecdotal and the epiphanic. The anecdotal story, typified by Hawthorne's The Birthmark, Poe's The Goldbug, and the Sherlock Holmes stories of Arthur Conan Doyle, or as I've said, Conan the Barbarian, presents an Aristotelian action with a beginning, middle, and end. The epiphanic story, represented by Chekhov's The Lady with the Dog, Joyce's Ivy Day in the Committee Room, and Crane's Civil War stories, adumbrates a fictional world not by developing a plot involving purposive agents, but by unfolding particular sensations or emotions and proceeding to a climactic revelation that does not necessarily take the form of a complete overt action. Now, Leech is a bit academic there, right? Like, who uses the word adumbrates? Adumbrate just means, like, vague foreshadowing or suggest. Now, Leech goes on to say that these don't really work, that, that there's always... Again, going back to my earlier statements, there's always a complexity to everything. And so, you know, we try to taxonomize, we try to classify the world. And what we find is that there's always stuff sneaking out. Because there are certainly anecdotal stories that may have elements of the epiphanic story. Now, what do we mean by the epiphanic story? There's a concept in short story studies called the epiphany and there are people who say it was james joyce who came up with this although that's one of those things where it's like james joyce makes a reference and then a bunch of academics talk about it for a century and then we go oh joyce came up with the epiphany but really joyce came up with a concept that we labeled the epiphany um and we developed that more than anything else and so i turned to valerie shaw not to james joyce to tell me what the epiphany is in her book the short story a critical introduction valerie shaw says that every story should provide the key to its own elucidation solving its own puzzles, even if the solution consists of an aura of suggestiveness which actually expresses the elusiveness of certainties or the instability of human perceptions. What is being said here? Valerie Shaw is saying sometimes uh, stories get written and their point is that the world is confusing or that life is meaningless. And if that's the point of the story, then the story will probably come across as meaningless, uh, confusing, etc., Nevertheless, when we read the story, as she says, every story should provide the, the key to its own elucidation, solving its own puzzles, right? That there should be a solution within the text to what the story is ultimately about. But in finding what the story is about, we may find that the story is about the elusiveness of certainties. And I felt this yesterday as I went to Richard Van Camp's Moccasin Square Gardens. Now, I bought Moccasin Square Gardens because I knew that Richard Van Camp had some of his speculative fiction in this collection. He's got a short story called Aliens, which is, you know, it, it, it takes place in a world where aliens have landed. Although the aliens really aren't the focus, they're more of a metaphor. But then there's We To Go War 1, Lying in Bed Together, and We To Go War 2, The Summoners, which is part of a story cycle that Richard Van Camp's been working on involving, for lack of a better term, um, 
zombies based on indigenous myth or indigenous tradition, ind indigenous lore. I was lucky enough to be at a reading where Richard read Etse slash Grandpa, which is a short story that could be classified as magic realism. So I'd already read those stories. I had not read Super Indians. And I'm going to read you the opening paragraphs. Chief Danny has outlasted my dad and popes, prime ministers, premiers. He is old school, down and dirty. And whenever he's off negotiating land claims for his people, he won't let anyone go with him. He says it's to save the beneficiary's money by traveling alone. But there are rumors he has women's in Ottawa. He's been fighting for land claims 22 years now, all by himself. And any time the feds got close to signing, he backs away and says, No! This counterfeit white man paper is an infringement on our treaty rights. That's it. I can't betray my people. And then the band's got to start all over. We have an elder who sits in the band office, Percy. He comes first thing in the morning for the free coffee, and he carries a list of promises that Chief Danny's made over the years. He'll ask, Where's the youth center our so-called chief promised? Where's the old folks' home? Where's the jobs? One time he yelled, Chief Danny is a negotiator, all right. He's very good at what he does. When you settle your land claims, you negotiate yourself out of a job. He doesn't want that. He likes the cushy life. He likes hopping on a plane every Tuesday to Ottawa, I guess. So what we have here is Richard Van Camp criticizing not just the way that Canada is handling Indigenous issues, but a short story where he imagines a chief who is mishandling Indigenous issues. Now, in an Aristotelian narrative structure, we might expect that the story that would follow would be all about our protagonist making things right, being the hero, overcoming the enemy. And while Chief Danny does get his comeuppance, I'm not going to tell you how. You gotta, you gotta get the book and you gotta read it because you gotta let that story just play out. It's so funny and yet at the same time, um, heartbreaking. Van Camp's a master. He absolutely has you emotionally off balance, laughing out loud, and then just hits you with a gut punch. It's brilliant. But I'm going to read you the last two paragraphs, which I don't think spoil anything. And that was the day I started to plot my revenge. I would spend my life uncolonizing Chief Danny. Seven billion people on this planet, and I'd found my reason to live. To take him down and save the North from him and every other loser leader out there. One day I will speak my language. One day I'm going to raise my family in a good way. I'm going, to, I'm going to buy that house Chief Danny's adding on to right now, and I'm going to reclaim that high score in Galaga that I used to have when I was 13. He used to live in that house because his father was once uh, the chief. Chief Danny, your reign of cheapness is about to end. My superhero power is now this. I will spend the rest of my life taking you down. I'm going to end you, Hoochie Coochie Man. Here comes the pain from the Tcho Daydreamer. And holy shit, this is going to be fun. What I love about this short story is that it plays in the spaces of complexity. It points a finger at people like Chief Danny, but we have to remember that that doesn't make all indigenous people Chief Danny. We have our narrator after all, but they also ultimately both have a sense of verisimilitude about them. Uh, Chief Danny isn't Sauron and our narrator isn't Frodo. While the narrative is emotionally satisfying, that satisfaction potentially comes from being aware of the short story's fragmentary nature. That is to say, when we don't have all of a story, we start to try to fill in the blanks ourselves. 
When I teach the short story, I almost always do Octavia Butler's brilliant short story, brilliant short science fiction work, Blood Child. People who read Blood Child try very hard to turn it into that coherent, emotionally satisfying version of reality, assuming that because Octavia Butler was a black writer, that she was writing about slavery in a story about a symbiotic relationship between these bug-like creatures called the Talik, who, for my money, are straight up related to the aliens from the franchise that Sigourney Weaver starred in. And they lay eggs in humans but they do this in a world where they try to potentially allow for consent. But that consent is complicated because the Talik are the ruling class. They're the ones with the power. Butler said that this was meant to be her pregnant man story. But critics and academics have been reading it as a metaphor for slavery over and over again. I think one of the reasons they go there is because they can take the narrative and allegorize it, and then they can create that coherent, emotionally satisfying version of reality. What's wonderful about Butler's Blood Child is that, like Kafka's Metamorphosis, it resists allegorization. You can allegorize pieces of it, but the whole narrative won't fall into step. Likewise, we say to people, well, you ought to listen to black voices. You ought to listen to indigenous voices. And then we go to those indigenous voices, or at least I did in my own experience yesterday, reading Richard Van Camp's Moccasin Square Gardens, and finding these stories of complexity, finding these stories that had the elusiveness of certainties, that work from the perspective of the instability of human perceptions. Richard Van Camp's short stories are not manifestos. They aren't marching orders for how to be anti-racist. They aren't ultimately instructions for how to support indigenous peoples in these times. We will still need all of those things. But while we're reading those and we're coming from a position of certainty that may ultimately be tied to us crafting this coherent, emotionally satisfying version of reality, I hope that we will balance our reading with the short story, with its elusiveness of certainties and its instability of human perceptions. Because as my students often noted, these are the stories that haunt us. When we operate from a position of certainty, moral certainty, we necessarily have to simplify the world beyond its complexity. In short, we craft a narrative. But rather than working with an aura of suggestiveness... We tell people, this is the way things are, and if you don't like it, you can unfollow me, you can go to hell, etc. You're a terrible person. Having grown up in the world of that kind of moral certainty in the church, I now get allergic reactions when I'm near it. Let me state once again that in no way do I think that we ought to just sort of lay back and just read short stories as a lazy solution to these tragic findings. But again, I instead of using my own words, I'd like to turn once again to John Jador and his sort of closing remarks, which are going to be my closing remarks today as well. So here's Jador again, once again, from that uh, article in the CBC. I think it's time that we redefine what Canada Day means. It can be a day of reflection, a day of recognizing that we're building a country that has a lot of opportunities for a lot of people. But it's also a day of recognizing that Canada is not perfect. It's never been perfect. But it doesn't mean we can't continue to improve. For me, it's not about canceling your pride and being happy about where you're from. It's about changing the tone of the conversation. 
so that we can all collectively celebrate Canada someday. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a comment, share it with a friend. I'm on Instagram both as Doc Pershawn and at Triple Bladed Sword. You can follow my Facebook page, Triple Bladed Sword, teaching fantasy, science fiction, and horror. And finally, if you have something you'd like me to talk about in a future office hour, leave a suggestion or a question in the comments, and I'll do my best to get to it. Thanks for tuning in today. I'm Mike Pershawn, and this is Triple Bladed Sword. Triple Bladed Sword.